and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. My name's David Steinhardt, and I'll be your host. Really humbled and honored to be here. I'm very excited to be running this show. Some of you may know me from my prior work with Classical Guitar and Beyond. And in regards to content, I'm going to be running things fairly similarly. We're going to have a guest artist or ensemble for each episode, mainly from the Tone Bass roster. And we're going to take a listen to sample recordings and have a conversation. Well, typical interview questions like string and guitar choice may come up on occasion if I find it would be interesting to talk about. We're going to dive deeper into the realm of the classical guitar world with topics ranging from pedagogical approaches, recording techniques, programming, arranging, composing, and many others. Very happy to have the great Scott Tennant as our first guest, a man who really needs no introduction. He's a founding member of the Grammy Award-winning Los Angeles Guitar Quartet, author of Pumping Nylon Technique Book, and of course, a renowned soloist, really one of the most uh, sought-after guitarists of his generation. We had a fun conversation a couple weeks ago in Los Angeles, talking about his most recent solo projects, recording two new records with the label Guitar Co-op. So let's kick things off and take a listen to an excerpt from the album Mysterious Barricades. This is a beautiful piece by Couperin titled Le Sylvain.
just took a listen uh, to your newest album, uh, Mysterious Barricades. Can you tell me a little bit about that project? Yeah, uh, that was fun. It's something I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, you know, you wonder... For years, I was thinking it'd be nice to record some Baroque music. And I have on other... Um, on my recital CD way back in, at the GHA on the GHA label. <clears throat> Did some Bach on there. But I mean, like, all Baroque. The thing is, uh, everybody's done the Lute Suites and everybody's done Scarlatti Sonatas and... And uh, I just didn't want to do the same kind of thing, although there are some similar things on there. There's the couple, you know, token Scarlatti sonatas. And I love Scarlatti. <clears throat> but um, so actually my favorite style of Baroque music is French. And I've listened to so much of it and just love the style. And these arrangements came available many years ago. Alex Dunn, uh, who got his who got his uh, doctoral degree at uh, UC San Diego, and his doctoral project was the Theorbo music of Robert Devise. And <clears throat> so, and this, we're talking back in like, wow, early, mid-80s, like, you know, way back. So this was uh, this was something that was brand new. And he was, this, this was an amazing publication. Um, it was not only the history of, in, in analysis of some of the Theorbo music, but he published a lot of music. So uh, some of that was published by the old guitar magazine, Guitar Review, um, even though they got the titles mixed up on a couple of them. So anyway, he, he let me have some of this music and um, just, I had it for a long time. And then I thought one, one point years ago, I thought, you know, this, I still have that somewhere. And I found it, and I started looking at it, and it's all in different tunings, you know, CG tuning, DG, etc. But um, wow, it was so beautiful and fun to fun to do. And so I started pro programming it as a set, and um, then I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to record some Baroque music, I'm going to highlight that and add a couple of my own little arrangements in there, and then do some other Baroque things. And that's how it came about. Mysterious Barricades is the title. Of course, that comes from one of the tracks, uh, Le Barricade Mysterieuse by Francois Couperin, um, which is on the CD. So uh, we thought it would just make a nice title. Yeah. And um, if I'm correct, you recorded in Brazil for this, right? Yeah, Guitar Co-op. They're a label that w had just formed in Brazil. And um, an old... Uh, competition buddy of mine, Marcelo Cayot, uh, was one of the founding fathers, I guess, of that, that label. And, um, he notified me about the label and what they were, what their mission was. And they wanted it to be kind of this sort of, well, a co-op, this sort of kind of brother sisterhood of guitarists kind of with one goal to promote, you know, guitar and repertoire and, and uh, they've commissioned work since uh, for various guitarists and, and whatnot. So anyway, I thought I'd love to... They asked me if I wanted to be involved. I said, absolutely. So um, they brought me down to Sao Paulo to do the recording and great facilities down there. Um, and the team was great. The engineer, uh, the producers, really, really, not, really, really wonderful. And to, to help pay for the trip, I mean, uh, they set up a concert for me there. Uh, I hadn't played there in... 
I played there probably 15 or more years prior to that. So, yeah, I went down to Brazil for that, and um, which is where they, since they're based there, they do most of the recording there. I did do this next CD, which is coming out pretty soon. Uh, we recorded that here in Los Angeles, and they were fine with that. So, Very cool. And I don't want to go off on another tangent about coffee, but I've got to ask from a fellow uh, coffee snob, did you have some amazing uh, roasts out there or brews in Brazil? You know, or do um, they export all of their they beans? Export. They huh. export. Yeah, because that's where the money is. However, yeah. I was turned on right down the street. I mean, two blocks away from this this amazing Jewish center that we were recording in. There was a an espresso bar. And I just I just asked him, "Hey, there wouldn't be any good espresso nearby with there because, you know, I could use one." I didn't think there would be one, um, just because the neighborhood was kind of residential. And mm-hmm. anyway, they said, "Yeah, in fact, there's a really good one down there. We go to all the time." And it was great. And I, you know, I I don't speak Portuguese, so I, I don't know. I couldn't. I can't tell you what they were using. I'm sure they were using Brazilian beans. Maybe not. Maybe they were using African beans. I don't know. But um, they did a really good job. Good barista there. It's all about good barista and good equipment. But you know. Thing is, and, you know, I was talking about me becoming an audiophile, and it's really a curse because um, I can't listen to stuff anymore, certain records and stuff. And, you know, I'm obsessed with equipment. It's kind of turned like that into coffee as well for me. But at the end of the day, if it tastes good, if it sounds good, that's the most important part. All these styles of guitars that are being built, and it's really fascinating learning, uh, you know, lattice, double top, traditional fan bracing versus uh, these new kind of pyramidal uh, type bracing. And it's so, it, and it's fun in ways, you know, to kind of get obsessed with all these um, uh, kind of technical facts. But at the end of the day, it tastes good or it sounds good. That's the most important part for me. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. And back to your album, I, I would love to hear about your approach to Kuparan. Um, he is one of my favorite um, composers um, from that time period. And, you know, not too many guitars play his repertoire, which is really too bad. And I really felt you, you had just such a great interpretation of that music being harpsichord uh, music to begin with. I, I'm not sure uh, what you're doing exactly, you know, if you have a different approach with trills or just kind of the right hand um, textures and everything to kind of um, match the style of music better because harpsichord's a very 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 different sound as opposed to you know doing arrangement of a violin sonata true yes um <clears throat> well there were a couple tunes on there that were harpsichord uh some of the theorbo things that uh i recorded that came from uh, Robert Devisay, they were by these arrangements that he did for the Theorbo were from different composers like Francois Couperin, Lully, uh, and also some original tunes in this collection too. Um, the thing is, you know, Baroque was <clears throat> the Baroque style, I guess if you if you want to call it a style or a, a practice, uh, practice is probably a better term in this case, was to borrow. And so, just like we do today, play our favorite hit tunes on a, on a guitar or ukulele even. I mean, uh, um, 
some amazing <laughs> some amazing ukulele players out there doing some Beethoven and Mozart and just you know it's crazy. And the thing is, if you like it and can make it work and get the essence, you know, uh, distill the essence of it, it's gonna come across nicely. And so, <clears throat> the practice of doing some of these orchestral works, even on the Thiorbo, I think Debussy really captured the essence of these pieces really well, especially the the overture of the Grotte de, Vers de Versailles by Lully. Uh, what is originally for orchestra it's a overture and so um debussy really captured that really well and, and then alex dunn who did the transcriptions kept that so it really filtered down nicely um the approach i i don't know i i tried to not do any cross string trills or very few in the pieces i knew were lute or theorbo mm -hmm. uh for the harpsichord arrangements or transcriptions i would freely you know do open string not that i'm trying to imitate a harpsichord but i know that it's stylistically it's good but with the things that say that were originally written for the theorbo or the lute there's a suite by uh, vice in there for instance yeah. having spoken a lot with paul Adet, who we all love and respect greatly uh you know nowadays i try to steer clear of doing cross string trills on an original lute piece or theorbo repertoire uh, just because they didn't do it. You yeah. know, it was all left-hand ornamentation. And you know what? I think it really lends itself better. I love cross-string trills, and you can put them in anything. But um, generally speaking, if it's harpsichord, uh, I can throw them in. But if not, I, I usually don't. And in this case, this was a, this was a good chance for me to really experiment with that. Because it's really tempting to throw in these cross-string trills because they sound so cool. Um but I, I, I resisted. So my approach to the Cupron in, in, in this case was to, uh, to allow cross-string trills, some of them in the, the Mysterious Barricades, but um, in the Debussy say uh, tune, I try to avoid them. The, the Francois Cupron arrangement he has in there. You don't want Paul to be calling you at three I in the morning. No, I do not. No. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I doubt he would do that. He's such a such a sweet person. Uh, I think but, Paul, Paul is appreciative. I think if it sounds good and it works. Yeah. You know. So tell me about this uh, new CD. I'm not exactly sure if it'll be released by the time uh, I'm releasing this podcast, but it's a very exciting project that you have. It was fun to do. It took a while, and it started... Um, well, the, first of all, let me describe it. The, the, the project is... It's called... It's a CD for Guitar Co-op, and it's called the Segovia Sessions. And it started with me going over to the guitar salon here in Los Angeles and trying out some of the guitars in this new collection they just acquired. Um, and in this collection was uh, Ramirez that... Uh, and the thing about this collection, by the way, was that it was unique. It wasn't a pristine, spotless collection. These are these are guitars that players actually used. They're and not just collector's instruments. No, these are... The, that's the thing. These these guitars were played by some players, you know, Bream and Williams and and uh, Segovia, Carlo Varro, etc. So at the end of the session, I tried a few guitars and... and, and and they recorded some sound samples on on a couple of them, and he was packing up 
uh, Kai was packing up the sound equipment and said, by the way, there's this Ramirez. I don't know if you want to try it or not. You know, it's I realized that I was going to show it to you and I forgot. And I was pretty tired. I said, I don't know, Kai, maybe I don't know. And he, as I said, is it really good? And he goes, I don't know. I haven't seen it. It's right over there. And I said, okay, sure. I'll try it. And I just to do something while he was packing up. <clears throat> and, um, so I'm left alone there on the bench, just, you know, trying this guitar out. And, and I, I'm rarely instantly blown away by an instrument, but I was sitting there th- playing this instrument thinking, this it went beyond thinking that this is so good. I was actually thinking of how can I get this guitar? This this could be my one guitar for everything I ever do the rest of my life. <laughs> and <clears throat> I can't describe the qualities really that I was that I was uh, experiencing. Just to say that it 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 wasn't easy to play. I mean, it was a big guitar. It is a big guitar because Segovia had big hands. It was made for him. 665 scale length or something uh, like that? I think it's, uh, yeah, it's up there, 664. Or maybe even bigger, yeah. Could or be. probably 664. I think that was kind of the Madrid scale length back. Yeah, but it's also very wide, and then the, the string spacing is quite wide. <clears throat> and um, it was made by Antonio Martinez, who was one of the builders in Ramirez's um, shop, apprentices at the time. So anyway, I was blown away by this guitar, and I remember thinking, instead of, you know, trying to figure out how I can buy this, because they probably had a buyer for it already, I didn't know. I said, oh, I got to do, I, let's do a recording on this. I, let's do a project. I don't know what it's going to be, but let's just do something. And um, <clears throat> uh, GSI got wind of that very quickly and said, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. So turned out I was going to do just Segovia repertoire, <clears throat> you know. Um, having, you know, I was lucky enough to play for him twice. And of course we had to play all his repertoire. Um, and I played a, one of his original compositions for him in a master class studio St. Louis. And so I thought I'd, I'd, I'd maybe record that along with a few other, uh, of his own, uh, compositions, but maybe some Ponce or Taroba and some other things that he, you know, composers that he had friendship with. So the more I thought, and I proposed that to Guitar Co-op, and they liked the idea. So the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, is there really enough uh, Segovia original music to make a CD? And I didn't think there was. But then all, there's all this hidden music. A lot of them, most of them are short. There's nothing longer than, I think, six or seven minutes. Mm-hmm. But there was enough. There was more than enough. In fact, we, we had to cut some because... So this is not the complete Segovia... Um, these aren't the complete Segovia compositions, but close to it. Okay. And anyway, I started reading through some of this music and I was just blown away because he was a great composer. I mean, he, um, not, not great in terms of magnitude, like a Shostakovich or anything, but he really had a unbelievable talent for writing short pieces in the style of, Soar, Ravel, Debussy, Scriabin, I mean, yeah, Brahms. He and then there was a little Segovia in there now and then that you could sense. No, because everyone knows Segovia for his arrangements and his collaborations with these composers and the Ponce letters and everything. Uh, but I, I think a lot of times we do kind of forget how beautiful a composer he could be. I mean, most people know his studio, uh, St. Louis, um, but I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that's actually the only one I know. Um, so I, I'm super psyched um, to hear this album 
I, I think it's really going to be a fun lesson and um, it's going to kind of, no pun intended, it's going to bring some light. Um, sorry, I've been studying with Bill too much. Studio, uh, but, studio con luz. <laughs> compact, it's gonna, compact disc con luz. <laughs> but it's going to bring some light, I think, into, you know, into the compositions and uh, of Segovia to really show that aspect uh, to people who aren't totally aware. And that that's a great thing. You know about the Studio St. Louis probably because that's one of the, that and Remembranza, another tune of his. Those are the only ones he really ever programmed once yeah. in a while. One thing he was actually quite humble about, I found, was his own compositions. You know, as, as you know, let's face it, you know, self-aware, let me just be nice and say self-aware of his uh, greatness as he was. That's a very uh, nice way to put it. (laughs) In promoting the guitar and himself. And, you know, I mean, he made, we wouldn't be solo guitarists today if it weren't for him. Absolutely. Uh, There were others, but Barrios didn't have the world scope that he had. Let's face it. So anyway, uh, he focused most of his time on, on spreading the guitar and doing as much of a variety as as he could have repertoire, little bits of Bach, little bits of Mozart, little bits of Brahms, and then Taroba and Ponce and people that he knew. So his pieces were kind of, he just kind of wrote as an outlet hmm. and never, ever promoted. In fact, when I played the Studio St. Louis for him in his master class in, at USC in 1986, he gave obviously some good comments and told a story or two about it. But then the last thing he said was, when it was time for me to, to go back to my seat, um, he said, now, young man, uh, now please suppress this piece. Huh. <laughs> and he kind of chuckled and I, I re- I knew what he was saying was basically don't make a big deal out of this piece. Just, you know, you know, play, play other things. Don't play this piece type of thing. That's really interesting. You know, because Segovia was so driven to bring respect into our instrument. And I think maybe he kind of thought, you know, maybe... I can't believe I'm saying this, but humbly thought um, that his um, compositions, you know, were nice, but wouldn't uh, kind of uh, bring more respect necessarily to the instrument as opposed to bringing out all these arrangements and uh, commissioning works from these great composers and everything. It's uh, right. never never thought of uh, that. It's really fascinating. Um, Back to the actual instrument, I really, I've got to ask. So when Kai said, oh, I've got a Ramirez in the back, blah, blah, blah. When you tried it the first time, did you know that was Segovia's old guitar? Yeah, he told me. Oh, okay. He told me, 1969, this was Segovia's instrument. Uh, We have proof of that. We have pictures of him playing it and all that and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, Of course, he had many Ramirez's and, you know, during his day as well as, you know, a Hauser or two at least and Flata's and... Yeah. But... um, it, it didn't blow me away because it was Segovia's, although that was part of the kind of historic kind of nostalgia feeling, this tingling you get when you're playing it. Yeah. But um, like, gosh, that scratch, that's probably Segovia's nail that did that. Hmm. No, it was just the fact that it was a great guitar. And so anyway, we went ahead with the plan. I, I learned as much stuff as I could and we recorded it at USC. Uh, I didn't, I felt, I didn't want to go to Brazil to do this, recording just because I just not only was it not my guitar uh, it had been during this time of figuring out the CD it had been purchased by a collector an anonymous collector 
who was nice enough to keep it here. In fact, it's still here. Yeah. Who was nice enough to keep it here uh, for me to do this project. And so I didn't want to take it to Brazil and risk anything. So we did it here and it worked great. Um, did it at Camillary Hall at USC, which is a beautiful sounding hall. And the guitar sounded great. The equipment, everything just came together so nicely. And I'm really happy with this project, even though it's a ni- it's a niche kind of a project. Um, you know, five or ten people might actually buy the disc at some point. But I'm really, really proud of of what we did. I think it's going to be a gem. I really do. And uh, I'm glad you didn't fly with that instrument. You know, first of all, you know, the different humidities and everything. Well, but, given the experiences you've had recently. Yeah, uh, British Airways, if you're listening to this, you. Ooh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, you just, uh, it's uh, it's definitely uh, dangerous. Well, not dangerous, but it's kind of scary um, flying with uh, guitars. And honestly, I've got it to a point where I've thought about buying a silhouette. You know, unless if I'm traveling and I'm going to perform something, I think I might just take a silhouette, just avoid that stress. It's, uh, it might make you check it. Yeah, but, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> that that would be pretty hilarious if I invest. Check a silhouette. Check a silhouette. Oh, my God. I That, that would make well, me. Well, sir, it's a guitar. <laughs> we don't allow guitars on our planes. You well, know, that, that's, the, that's the line I got. Oh, sir, we just don't allow musical instruments on board. And, 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 you know, so... And you look at those closets that, you know, all these business class travelers have or first class uh, for their jackets. And it's like, oh, we don't have room. We don't have room. And you yeah. take a peek and there's tons of room. There's like one jacket in a whole closet. Mm-hmm. But, but um, yeah, I guess that's what it is. And uh, this summer, you, you actually, you had to travel a little bit with two guitars. I saw you, uh, you've acquired a, a new instrument. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you have quite a collection of guitars, but you're telling me now you <clears> kind of <throat> have three or four kind of main axes, you know, and they're all kind of different build styles. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been a collector and I don't want to be a collector. I love guitars. <clears throat> and in fact, I love them too much to just have them sitting around and, and, you know, when I'm not around or not being played, um, I keep guitars that I play. And so, um, uh, I did acquire a guitar unexpectedly in Germany, uh, coming back, you know, in Germany there this, this, uh, summer. Um, and this also this summer, earlier in the summer, late spring, I was lucky enough to, um, to purchase a, a 1979 um, Daniel Friedrich, who's my favorite builder of mm. all time. Um, I used to have, well, I've had two of them in the past, and one I had way back in like 1990 or so. I had to sell it because of a car wreck, and I was crushed by that. Oh, Not by the car wreck. I was crushed by the fact that oh. I had to sell. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was I, was kinda... I had literally negative money at that time because oh, I bought man. this Friedrich, which is my pride and joy. But the guitar was okay. The guitar was fine. Okay, yeah. so at least it was The guitar a... was in the car at the time. Yeah. But anyway... But so, still, it's quite sad. Uh, I was really lucky to come across. So I took that to Europe and played, you know, was touring on that. And then this other guitar came available. I just thought, I got to get this. And so, you know... So mm. now I have... Uh, well, the three main axes that I'm using now are... Uh, I have a Lattice Brace guitar, a, a, a Spruce guitar by 
Philip Woodfield. That's really my main axe. I've also got a cedar, but the spruce is really my main axe. And then the Friedrich, which is very traditional, as traditional as you can be. Uh, and then uh, this, uh, this new one by uh, Achim Gropius uh, from Germany. It's a double top, uh, double spruce top, and it's, it's just beautiful and very unique. So I kind of have one of each style. And I find those uh, double spruce tops... I, you know, when before I played one, I kind of expected it to be ultra bright. I, they have this really kind of creamy, um, sensitive sound and a tonal quality to them. Is that That's kind a good of, way to? Yeah. This is totally creamy a sound. It's, yeah, <clears throat> it's it's not what you'd expect. Uh, with two spruce yeah because you would think oh my god that's going to be so bright or whatever right no it's not it's it's just very rich actually and i know i know you're saying you know the the wood field's kind of the main main axe of these three but do you find you kind of um you know when you're deciding what to play on you know i don't know if it's just something like oh you know i'll play this guitar today to have fun or do you kind of do you kind of pick uh whatever guitar you're performing on kind of based off of the the concert situation, whether it's, you know, a solo concert of maybe your French Baroque set or if you're playing with the quartet. Is there kind of a thought process that goes behind there it? There is. Yeah, I mean, when I'm home <clears throat> for a stretch, I like, you know, taking out... I mean, I have, I have other guitars than those three I mentioned. Um, but, you know, I like to take them out and play them maybe a few days here on that one, a few days on this one. But when I when I'm ready to go on a tour, whether it's myself or the quartet, I really have to start practicing on that guitar. Because uh, as you know, you might finger things differently or play harder, play softer. So, uh, and every yeah. guitar, in a way, kind of has a different technique required out of it to produce kind of the optimal sound. Very subtle, you know. I don't want to make it sound like. This guitar, you have a right hand like Parkening, and this guitar, you have a right hand like uh, David Russell, you know, but they are kind of, I find very subtle changes you kind of have to be yeah. careful with. No, you have to adjust. So I do practice on whatever I'm going to travel with, yeah. Thank you, Scott, for being on the show. And thank you to all you listeners for tuning in. Just in case if anyone was a little confused about my salty attitude towards British Airways, I flew with them this past summer, and over the course of just a month and two trips, they lost my guitar twice. Uh, don't worry, instrument eventually came back in one piece, but it was definitely a, a bit of a stressful time, so highly recommend flying with another airline if you're carrying your instrument with you. I hope you can join me in a couple weeks for a conversation with the renowned performer and teacher, Judicao Priore. Really excited that I got my hands on a little preview for Scott's Segovia record, which is titled The Segovia Sessions. I highly recommend heading over to www.guitarcoop.com.br. And by the way, co-op is just spelled C-O-O-P uh, for the URL. You can purchase the Segovia record here, Mysterious Barricades, along with all the other albums from the label. So please check them out. This is Scott Plain on the world-class Ramirez guitar we were talking about earlier, piece by Segovia himself titled Macarena, and it's the opening track to the CD. I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast.